0: The 7th chapter of the book of Jeremiah, beginning verse 11, I'll just read through a few verses because this really is a long temple sermon that Jeremiah preached. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. But go now to my place which was in Shiloh, Where I made my name dwell at the first. And see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord. And I spoke to you rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name in which you trust and to the place which I gave you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh. This temple sermon that Jeremiah preached echoes the words of Jesus in Matthew 21 when he walked into the temple and said it is written that you shall call my house a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. Now a robber's den was not a place where robbers lived. It was a place where robbers hid. It was a kind of a king's ex place where they would flee to find security and safety. So these robbers would go out and do a number on folks And then they'd flee to the robber's den for hiding and security. Now we have over in the eastern part of the state of Oklahoma uh, a place called Robber's Cave. Now I'm not familiar really with the history of that name, but I assume that there was a time when, you know, bandits would roam up and down and they'd bump off a stagecoach and then they'd hightail it for Robber's Cave. And they'd hide out there until it, you know, the heat you know, kind of subsided. It was a place of hiding and a place of safety. And what these people were doing in Jeremiah's day and in Jesus' day was this. They would go out and they'd rob the poor and they'd do a number on folks and then they'd run to church. When they got to church they'd say, now God's not going to hurt us as long as we come to church. All God's interested in is that we sit in the church on Sabbath and there we're going to be secure and safe. God's not going to touch us there. And because this is God's place and He's not going to harm us when we're in God's place, as long as the temple is established in Jerusalem, God's never going to let anything happen to Jerusalem. And Jeremiah gave them a bit of bad news. He said, in fact, that the temple was not a place of security. It was a place of judgment. And that the place called the house of God was not a place where men could hide. It was a place where men would be exposed so that when they came there, God's word and the searchlight of it would expose every sin in their life. You've made this a robber's den. Now this wasn't really the kind of sermon that these folks wanted to hear really because it had three implications. Now I want to share these implications with you in light of church renewal because it is as relevant today as it was when the the ink was wet on the parchment. There are three things that are going on here among these people that stirred up this temple sermon. The first is this there was this confusion between their place and His place. They had confused their place with His place. They were guilty of the sin of temple-olatry. They, they, they worshipped the temple of God rather than the God of the temple. And they said, they, they assumed with this false assumption that God's never going to harm anybody who is in His place. This is His house and this is His temple and God's going to secure that and protect that and we can do anything we want to during the week. Just as long as we come there, God's not going to hurt us. Now where do they get that notion? I mean, where do we get those kinds of ideas? Well, it harkened back to the 32nd chapter of the book of Isaiah When Sennacherib, king of Syria, was sweeping down upon Israel like a wolf on the fold, was going to destroy the city of Jerusalem, God said, it's not going to happen. Sennacherib is not going to destroy my place. He said, as a matter of fact, in that 32nd chapter, my tent poles will never be brought down. And these people in Jeremiah's day were saying, now wait a minute, who is this guy to tell us that God's going to destroy us while we're here in his church? Doesn't he know about what Isaiah said? I mean, who is this guy to tell us this when Isaiah has promised that we're always going to be safe in God's place? Well, let me just mention that... that there are two dangers of interpreting God's Word. One is the danger of taking God's Word out of context. Did you know you could prove anything you wanted to prove with the Bible? You just take something out of context and you you can prove anything by it. I heard about this evangelist who proved that you weren't supposed to ever put your hair up in a bun, women. And he used that text from... Matthew, where Jesus said, Those who are on the house top not come down. He was forecasting the destruction of Jerusalem and it was time of urgency, you know, top not come down. And so he said, Women were never to wear their hair up in a knot. I mean, you can take anything as absurd as that sounds out of context and make it say, make it prove anything, prove anything with it. The second danger of interpreting God's Word is what is called eisegesis. It is to take your bias and force it on Scripture. This is what I believe. I'm going to make the Bible say this. What was going on here was that God had never said anything about an external temple in Isaiah 32. He was talking about His eternal ab- abiding, His eternal place, For the fact is that the people in Isaiah's day and Jeremiah's day and in your day cannot live like they want to live and worship as they please and God preserve them. And so God said to Jeremiah, you tell these people that I'm going to do here what I did in Shiloh and that doesn't mean a thing to you. But if you'd have been there in that day, and if you'd have been a Jew, you would have gasped audibly. You would have vapor locked. You would have sucked air. I'm going to do to you what I did to Shiloh. For Shiloh was the first temple of God presided over by Eli. And Eli had two sons that were exceedingly wicked. And because of the wickedness of his sons and the people, God sent the Philistines against Shiloh and they tore down the city and they pulled down the temple and they took away the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of the presence of God. And Eli was an old man over 90 and he inquired, how's the battle going? And when they told him that that his sons had been killed, and the city had been destroyed, that was grievous. But when they told him that the Ark of the Covenant had been removed, it was so traumatic that he fell from where it was sitting and died. And he had a daughter-in-law who was pregnant. And when she inquired of the battle and they told her that her husband had died, that was grievous. But when they told her that the Ark of the Covenant had been taken away, it caused this premature labor Such was the trauma, and she gave birth to a child, a son. She named him Ichabod, for the glory of the Lord hath departed. Will Durant said that the big question confronting us is not communism versus individualism, not America versus Europe, not even East versus West. The big question confronting us is this. How long can man live without God? For there seems to be this theme that runs through the prophets like a warning, and this theme is, and the theme is this, that God prefers to be unrepresented rather than to be misrepresented. Now listen to that. There seems to be a warning in the prophets that God would rather not even have a house, not even have a people who go to that house than to have a house and a people that misrepresent Him. Now this place is holy by association. This place is holy because people have been saved here and God has spoken here and God is seen here and God is felt here. And it is sacred and holy only when that happens. There's nothing sacred about this building and there's nothing sacred and succinct about this order of service that we follow on Sunday morning. The only thing sacred about holy places and holy things is the association of God with them. And so God said to Jeremiah, I'm going to get out of there. I don't belong there, for that's not my place. Now, they went through their religious observances and they paid their religious money and they put on their church face and they punched their religious time card, but their lives were far from God and He was not associated there. Listen to me. The question that confronts God's people in any age is this. Is this His place or is it ours? Now if this is His place, then every action of our life is subject to His influence. If this is His place, then every conclusion we hold is subject to change, even our religious conclusions. And if this is His place, everything we have is up for grabs. And if this is His place, then this place ought to define the will and the Word of God for the people who come here. In 1984, in a little town called Collinsville, Oklahoma, some of you know where it is, outside of Tulsa, a 34-year-old nurse by the name of Marion Quinn filed a lawsuit against the church for invasion of privacy for a million dollars and won. Now what would happen, and I'll just give you the short, gory details, is it seems that this woman was sleeping with this guy. She's a member of this church, not Baptist, another mainline denomination. She was sleeping with this guy, and the church went through this procedure of church discipline, asked her to quit. She wouldn't, so they decided they'd remove her name from their roles. And she sued the church for invasion of privacy and won $390,000. And one of the jurors expressed what they, came, what they, what they thought, what they believed. They, she said this, this juror said this, we don't believe that the church has any business telling people how they ought to live. And her flamboyant lawyer said that she could go fornicating up and down the street, end quote, and it wasn't any of the business of the church to stick its nose there, end quote. Huh. I ask you this morning, Are there no unique moral imperatives for the people who come here? Is there not a definition that can be defined concerning the will and the word of God for the people who come here? I ask you, or is it not true that the people who come here ought to be different from the people who don't? If this is His place, then when we come here, we ought to be different, and when we leave, we ought to be different. Guy was telling me this week, the uh, most ironic statement I've heard in a long time. He was talking about a uh, certain uh, person, that certain people he knew. He said, you know, I work with those people out there. Not this church, but he, he said, I work with those people out there during the week. And he said, they're different when they come to church. What he meant was they come to church and fight all the time. I thought how ironic we ought to be different when we leave the church. You hear what I'm saying? I heard um, Ralph Langley tell about when he was in uh, Pastor Willow Meadows Baptist Church this guy invited him to go here John Kennedy when he's running for president he said he went to hear John Kennedy he said it was a hundred dollar plate dinner. He said what I thought man this must be really going to be great food, a hundred dollars worth. He said, when I got to the dinner, he said it was a, it was just a paper plate and a piece of cold ham and a, and a and a powdered potatoes and a hard bun. He said, I thought to myself while I was sitting there, well, boy, that's a ripoff. Paid hundred dollars for that. He said, I, I saw the guy across the, the table from me. And I said, he, he wasn't eating a bite. He said he hadn't touched it. And I said, boy, you better eat everything there, eat the plate. You know, get your money's worth. He said, Man, I can't eat this food. And he said, I thought to myself, What a, a rip off a guy pays $100 for that and never tastes it, never touches it. And then he said, I remember my church. He said, Every Sunday morning I have this packed out church where a banquet is being spread, where bread that satisfies the deepest hunger. And, and water that quenches the deepest thirst is being offered, and the folks sit there and never taste, never taste. If this is His place, listen to me, if this is His place, then everything we have belongs to Him, and everything we have is up for grabs. Confusion with His place in the second was that, that a criticism of the institution became a criticism of God or even worse. Now watch this carefully. When Jeremiah had a negative word to say about God, that didn't bother those folks at all. But when they had a negative word to say about the institution, they got all worked up. Now listen to what happened. Listen to this. And when the princes of Judah heard these things, they came up to the house, to the king's house, to the house of the Lord, and sat in the entrance of the new gate of the Lord's house. They came to church. Then the priest and the prophet spoke to the officials and to all the people, saying, A death sentence for this man. Kill this guy. Why? For he has prophesied against this city. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what they said about Jesus. Now watch. They didn't say to Jesus, You've prophesied against our sin and we don't like it. They said, You prophesied against our temple and we don't like it. For the institution had become more important to them than the God of the institution. Now you mark it well, you you be the judge. There are very few people today who will listen to a criticism of the institution without making that an act of betrayal. You let somebody stand up and bring a criticism against the institution and immediately we see that as an act of betrayal. America, love it or leave it, if he's going to criticize the nation, let him move. If he's going to say a word about our institution, we'll get us somebody else. For our institution is more important than anything to us. Sound like anybody you know? It's like, what, you know, what is love? If I have this child that's, that's wild and reckless and rebellious and disruptive and, cru- and cruel, do I say to that child, I love you, therefore I can't say a correcting word against you? William Hull was a preacher, pastor of the First Baptist Church in Shreveport, Louisiana. And one morning he got up, and I guess he kind of got up like I did this morning. He, he, he got up and he's, he, he, he just brought a prophetic word. And he pointed out some things in the city of Shreveport, Louisiana and in his church that he thought needs to be some correction, some renewal, and it just... Made everybody mad. The next day downtown, folks were saying, what got into Brother Hull? He doesn't love us anymore. He doesn't love Shreveport. Let him move. He doesn't like us. A friend of mine is pastoring a little town where my daughter lives right now. One night, one Saturday night, God laid on his heart. He needed to get up and say a prophetic word. His church needed revival. Needed renewal. We're just playing church. He got up, he had a word to say about the church, about the deacons, about the institution. I mean, it wasn't nighttime until he was ready to, I mean, until they were on him like a, like a hit on a June, but they said, if he doesn't like it, let him leave. And they ran him out, literally, from town and ruined his emotional health. I'm here to say this morning that we are not perfect <laughs> and we need to be willing to admit that there are a lot of things that we ch- need to change as a people of God. And I love this town more than any town I've ever lived in. I love this church more than any church I've ever pastored. But I'm here to say that you and I need to accept the fact that there are some places where we may be wrong third problem here was the problem of the constant hypocrisy or inconsistency between the orthodoxy and the doctrine and the actual practice. Now listen carefully. If you've turned me off and you said he's preaching too loud and too hard, tune me back on because I want you to hear this. Their orthodoxy outstripped their orthopraxy. Now what that means is that they, they, they had the perfect, they had it all down pat with regard to official doctrine, but the execution of that doctrine was lacking. They had the verbiage, you see. They had all the right words and all the right ritual and they did it all, they had all the plaques that you put on the refrigerators, you know. And all the bumper stickers that you put on the, on the bumpers, smile, God loves you, and all that. They had all that. They had all the right words and the right form, but no substance. Their execution was not equal to their orthodoxy. And Jesus got on that pretty hard, didn't he? When he came to the Pharisees, he said, "Oh yeah, I know you got it all down. You got the verbiage, you got the writ, you got the farm." But he said, "You're full of death." Now, there are three results because of that. Three results from that. Hear this. You trace this through this temple sermon. It's not in chronological sequence. That's why the Book of Jeremiah is so difficult to read because it's not chronologically arranged. But you chase chase this this temple sermon. You follow it through the book of Jeremiah and you'll see that there were three results, three consequences of of an inconsistency between execution and orthodoxy. The first was this. He said because of that, the ark has got to go. The ark has got to go. Now what was the ark of the covenant? The Ark of the Covenant, Clyde Francisco, listen to this, Clyde Francisco has the best definition of the Ark of the Covenant. He says, The Ark of the Covenant was the national museum of supernatural history. It contained the the rod of Aaron that budded, the manna that came down from heaven, some of that, and the stones on which the Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God. And the folks could say, you guys believe in miracles? No, I don't believe in miracles. Well, look in that box. I'll show you some. And that box contained the proof of a supernatural God. Underline that thought. The Ark of the Covenant contained the proof of a supernatural God. And they could say, you don't believe in miracles? Well, let's look in this box. We got the proof we got proof of miracles right here that God is a miracle-working God. And when God said, the ark has got to go, He was saying this, I am going to remove from you the evidence, the proof of a supernatural God. I can't think of anything any more frightening than that. Now, it's wonderful to come to church, and everybody ought to, some of you more than others. Everybody, it's wonderful to have a great church. It's wonderful to do what we do at the church. But listen to me. I'm sharing the deepest conviction I have with regard to the church. If there is no evidence of a supernatural God, then the church is a waste of time. The thing that makes the church the church is that we have the evidence of the supernatural occurring. Now, what Jeremiah is saying is this, is that I'm, I'm, your, your miracles, your life will be empty of them, empty of them. Can I ask you a deep question? Does your life have any evidence of the miraculous about it? Is there any evidence in your life of the supernatural, supernatural God? He said, the ark's got to go. Second thing he said was this He said, the sacrificial system has got to go. Now, the sacrificial system is where they brought the, the, the sacrifices to the altar. Listen to me. It was the place, it was the place where God met man and man met God. That's why the cross is the place. Of sacrifice because God put his sacrifice there so that he could meet man there and God could meet him there when God said in the book of Jeremiah the sacrificial system has got to go he meant more than the fact that they weren't just going to practice animal sacrifices he meant because of your sin I'm not going to meet you there anymore do you think anything more scary than that and to come to church on Sunday morning and meet together in church and God not be there? Can you think of anything more frightening than that? Now, that may not send a hair pulling your head, but does on mine to, 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 to think that there might come a time when this congregation would gather in a place where God was not. I heard uh, Jimmy Allen say the other day, he said, I preached, that sermon, I preached a sermon on Enoch walks with God. He said, I preached that. So I talked about what a miracle it was that Enoch could walk with God. Enoch walked with God. He said, one day an old man said to me, said, Jimmy, the miracle of that story is not that Enoch walked with God. The miracle of that is that God walked with Enoch. I love it. The miracle is not that man walks with God. The miracle is that God would come down and walk with man. And when he said, take that sacrifice and get it out of there, he was saying something much worse than the cancellation of sacrificial system. He was saying, I'll not meet you there anymore. Third thing he said, not only does the ark have to go, Not only does the sacrificial altar have to go, he said, the nation has to go. I want to read you one verse. He said, Then I will make to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice and the joy, the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land will become a a ruin. Now the word there, ruin, in the, in the, in the Hebrew is, is the word void. He said, I'm going to make it like it was. It's the same word that, that's there in the, in the Genesis account when it says that the earth was without form and void. It hadn't come about yet, see. It was without form and void. It wasn't. And what Jeremiah is saying is that God's saying, I'm going to make it as though... You weren't even there. I'm going to make it so that you can have your church down on your street corner and you can pack it out on Sunday, but it will be as though it weren't even there. Wow, I can't think of anything more frightening than that. Let me tell you, the greatest thing that can ever happen, the worst thing that could ever happen to a church is for that church to be ignored. There was a time when the church had a word, a profound word. And when that church, whatever, whoever it was preaching from the pulpit, whenever that church proclaimed its word, it, it was heard. And that word meant something. The the worst thing, the greatest tragedy that could ever happen to the church is for that church to meet and meet and meet and nobody even know it, ignoring it. Silence is as if they weren't even there. I, I, I hope that I am wise enough that if God withdraws his hand upon my ministry, so that when I preach, it was as if I didn't even say anything, that I'm smart enough to know it's time to quit. Can I say it again? I hope if the day ever comes when God takes His hand off of my ministry, and when I preach, it is as if I said nothing, that I'm I'm, I'm smart enough to know that it's time for me to quit. I hope that happens. Because when God no longer speaks in a church and through a church, it has no reason to exist. Silence. Now I want to show you one last thought, even more frightening than that, is that this silence was not just the silence from the church without, but from God to the church. In other words, he's saying, if you follow that, I didn't even read all my text. In that text, he says, No use to pray, because I'm not going to hear you. I'm not going to answer. No use to pray because I'm not going to answer you. Silence. I tell you, it's a dead, it's a tragic and terrible day when God no longer speaks to man. When he no longer answers. Um, you know when they brought Jesus to Pilate and Pilate had all these questions? Pilate's popping these questions, Jesus popping these answers. Pilate's saying this, Jesus answered. It wasn't what Pilate wanted to hear so he'd ask another question. Finally he asked a question and Jesus had no answer. Silence. Because Jesus had answered him and answered him and answered him and he didn't do anything about the answer so he's quit answering him. And they brought Jesus to Herod and he said nothing to Herod, not a word. He's the only man in scripture that Jesus never responded to, never said one word, never uttered one word to Herod, silence. And the most tragic thing I can think this morning is that man would come to God for some more words, for some more words, tell us some more words but we've not been obedient to the words we've already had. And so when we come, God says, No, from now on, no word. You've heard my last one. And it's what Amos trembled about when he talked about the famine of the Word of God. He did not mean that it would come a time when there'd be no preachers. He meant that there would come a time when God would no longer speak. And I tell you, there is nothing as terrifying as the silence of God. Give us some more words. I have gave you my last one. When you obey that one, you'll get some more. Now what is the conclusion of all of this? The conclusion is in this text. And that is absolute, urgent renewal in the presence of God. He said we're going to get back to the basics and the basics are these. Obedience to my word and repentance from sin. The basics have nothing to do with altars and sacrifices and rituals. The basics have to do with this. I'm going to repent of my way of life and I'm going to obey the word of God. And when that happens... Renewal comes. Do I speak this morning to someone here? I sense in the solemnity and the dynamic of this moment, all the time I've preached really, that God has spoken to some heart. Is there someone here this morning who has confused this place with their place? Your life is subject to change this morning, to his influence. Is there anyone here this morning who, whose orthodoxy is right on line, but whose execution is out of kilter, then the answer for you is repentance toward God and obedience. Renewal, absolute renewal in the presence of a holy God. Let's pray. Father take this word and this invitation as an offering to thee and may you be pleased with our response for I pray in Jesus name there are three invitations this morning an invitation for you to receive Jesus Christ as personal Savior I don't know where that occurs But somewhere it must occur that God pleads with you and pleads with you and pleads with you until there is no pleading left. I think it's at death, but regardless, there is a time when the mercy of God is finished. If you want to be saved, if you want to accept Christ, come this morning and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You'll not find security. In church membership, but only in in Him, faith in Him. An invitation this morning for for God's people, for renewal of life, for repentance from, from, from the old life, for a change to occur, a transformation to happen, or maybe to join the church just to be obedient to God's plan for you at that point. We're going to sing an invitation and and I just feel like it. Many of you need to come, and so some of you want to come right on the very first. You'll want to do that. Just step right out and come while we stand to sing. Come on.